A reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for you to send your spirit to tend to your word this morning that we might hear what you have for us, and that our eyes and our hearts might be drawn to Jesus, Emmanuel, and that you would fill us up in our empty spaces, uh, that you would cleanse us and renew us, uh, that you would help us to enter into the joy of your salvation again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Now I'm looking at the crowd and I'm realizing many of you probably won't remember this reference because you weren't born yet, Uh, but in the early 1990s, there was a song that came out by Joan Osborne, and uh, anybody know where I'm going with this? Yes, thank you, L. Colcar. The song was titled, What If God Was One of Us? And it had wonderful lyrics like this, if God had a name, what would it be? And would you call it to his face? If you were faced with him in all his glory, what would you ask if you had just one question, right? So far, so good. Uh, The second verse is, if God had a face, what would it look like? And would you want to see it if seeing meant that you would have to believe in things like heaven and in Jesus and the saints and all the prophets? You're like, okay, uh, see what you're doing there. And the, the chorus is where it just kind of goes off the rails. What if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home? And the song ends uh, with some remarks about this slobby uh, stranger God making his way home, calling no one on the phone. I think it was just sort of like, that kind of rhymes. Um, except maybe the Pope in Rome. That's how it ends. So uh, this is actually a terrible song. Like lyrically, uh, not offended by it. It's just, it's not very good. But it was super popular. And I think the reason why it became so popular was because it hooked something in each of our hearts. And that is a longing to know what God is really like. If there's a God, what is he like? And how would we know? In our Advent series uh, this, this, uh, this year has been focusing on the names of God that we find in Scripture. That God gets to reveal himself and he has given us a variety of names in his word that highlight his character. And they also help us to understand 
Jesus in his incarnation. And this morning, our fourth Sunday in Advent, uh, the last one before Christmas, we encounter the name in this text, Emmanuel, which Matthew goes ahead and spells out the meaning of it for us. God with us. Emmanuel is a combo word. It comes from Emmanu and El, uh, which means with us is El, which is short for Elohim. That God is the with us God. And specifically in this passage, Jesus is the with us God. There's actually two names in this uh, passage that are given to this child that is born. The first is Jesus, and the second is Emmanuel. And as we'll see, the first helps us understand the second, and the second helps us understand the first. But this is the outrageous claim of Christmas, is that God has fully and finally revealed himself in Jesus. And that is something that Christians have confessed for centuries. Jesus is God come in the flesh. It was uh, codified in the Apostles' Creed, that early document that begins, I believe in God the Father Almighty, and it moves through a stanza. But the second stanza is, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And those early Christians were keying off of a passage like the one that we're looking at this morning. Now, this is a passage that is familiar to to all of us. Uh, Whether you're a Christian or not, uh, you've probably heard it uh, at some point in your life and uh, may be familiar with it through Handel's Messiah. But sometimes that familiarity works a bit to our disadvantage. You know, I was in um, seminary in Philadelphia uh, around 2000. We would have people come visit us and they always wanted to go to Broadway, you know, not too far away. So one time this couple came and they had bought tickets for Les Mis. They were going to treat us to see Les Mis on Broadway. And I had never seen it, uh, heard, you know, that it's fantastic. Uh, but my wife had, and I said, what's it about? And she said, oh, it's about this little girl grows up in like wartime stuff. I don't know. And uh, I was like, oh, that sounds really interesting. Why is this such a hit? And we go, we go to the play, we go to the musical. We're sitting there and my wife is not a crier, but I look over at her and tears are just coming down her eyes. And she's like, I missed everything. I missed everything that this story is about. She had seen it, but she hadn't really seen it. And for some of us, we come to passages like this, our familiarity with it gets in the way. And if we pay a little bit closer attention, we maybe realize, oh, I've missed everything. So let's jump into this passage this morning, and I will do my best to move quickly because I know everyone is freezing. And we'll go a little longer in the second service. Uh, it'll be warmer. <laughs> Let, let's begin with this. <clears throat> God does not play by our rules. And that is really important if we're going to understand this passage. Right? His ways are not our ways. His plans are not our plans. In order to understand what I mean by that, we need to look at the experience of Joseph in this text. And just a little side note. Last year, we uh, used the Gospel of Luke as the basis for our Advent Uh, series. And the gospel of Luke places the spotlight on Mary and how she experiences this momentous event in human history. But Matthew draws our attention to Joseph. And we don't know much about him, but it isn't hard to guess how he felt about all that was going down. Here's what we do know. Joseph, we are told in verse 18, was betrothed 
to Mary. Now, that's not a word we use very often uh, in this day, but it's getting at something that was commonly understood in their day. There were two stages to marriage in ancient Jewish custom. There was the Kiddushin and the Nisuin. And the Kiddushin, which is being referred to here, was the betrothal stage. A man and a woman would be legally married, but they had to wait a whole year before living together or being physically intimate with each other, which is like one of the worst ideas ever, okay? The parents of the groom would pay the bride price to the bride's family. And as a father of three daughters, I'm in favor of bringing this one back. And this year-long probation was actually to make sure the girl was not pregnant. You could only break a betrothal by getting a divorce. So during this betrothal, Mary starts to show. And we know from the Gospel of Luke that she had been let in on the secret. Perhaps she talked to Joseph about it, but you know how dudes can be sometimes. But this text tells us specifically, this is from the Holy Spirit. It's one of those little hints that there is more to God than we have imagined. And we can only assume that she told Joseph, but can you imagine how humiliating this was for him? People are going to talk. They're either going to say, Joseph, what have you been up to? Or they're going to say, I think your Mary's been fooling around. Can you imagine the embarrassment? Imagine how painful that would have been for him. And of course, if Mary had told him it's from the Holy Spirit, I mean, what are you going to say to that? (laughs) You're like... Yeah, right. Um, Lots of people dismiss this story as fanciful fanciful and fabulous because they think ancient people gobbled up these kind of stories, right? But that's not not only not a fair reading of history, it's not a fair reading of the text. Joseph wasn't buying it if he was told. And it says he resolved to divorce her quietly. He didn't want to put her to shame. He didn't want to press charges for defrauding him. But he can't go on with this. And it's going to take an angel of the Lord to convince him otherwise. Right. Think, think about this very odd, strange, scandalous way that God is acting. He doesn't play by our rules. Joseph, being a righteous man, which means he was in right relationship with God, had to be utterly confused. Right? His dreams were being crushed. Right? His hopes were being dashed. His plans for the life that they were going to have together Right? Or just are crumbling before him. And yet little did he know God was up to something bigger and better than he could possibly have dreamt. And the angel of the Lord comes to him and tells him what's up. But make no mistake, for the rest of his life, this would be Joseph's story in the town. God's ways are not our ways. Yet here, right here in this mess, God was at work. And his work was to save. See, that's the first name that is given to this child. He says, you're going to call him Jesus. And you know what Jesus means? It means God saves. The Greek word is Yeshua, right? Which is uh, transliterated from the Hebrew, which is a, a longer Yehoshua, which is Yahweh is the one who saves. Yahweh being the covenant name of God. This child is going to be called Yahweh saves. He's somehow fitting into God's plan and purpose to save his people. 
And if you read the Old Testament carefully, only God can save. Jonah 2.9, uh, all over the Psalms. So this child is somehow actually God himself coming to save. Jesus is God's salvation embodied in a human person. Who does he save? What well, says he comes to save his people. Your, your first uh, instinct should be that's Israel. But as you read the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, you realize that the boundaries of his people are expanding just as God had promised in the Hebrew Scriptures. And what does he save his people from? Well, this is important. From their sins. Not from their enemies, first and foremost. And that had to be a bit unsettling to the people of Israel who had spent centuries and centuries under varieties of oppression. Began in Egypt where they were slaves, right? Then the Assyrians kicked them all around. And then it was the Babylonians. And at this moment in history, it was the Romans. But God is coming and showing up to save from sin, not from sinners, or at least not yet. His central mission is to save his people, not from other people's sins, but from their own. And this is so important because if you're going to understand the coming of Jesus into this world, he did not show up to forge a burning hatred against them in order to ignite a revolution. He came to rescue his people, his church, you and me, from our sins. The thing to be hated the most is sin. And our own sins especially. The Gospel of Matthew highlights over and over again. That Jesus isn't God save us from them. He's God save us from ourselves. Now, I want you to do a little mental thought experience here for a second. If Jesus is God come to save from our sins. Save his people. Go ahead and put your name in there. Jesus comes to save DJ from his sins. DJ comes. DJ comes. <laughs> I'm tired. I did a wedding this weekend. Jesus comes to save Iron from his sins. Jesus comes to save Elsie from her sins. Jesus comes to save Jess from her sins. Jesus comes to save. And he comes to save us from our sins. In this moment. This birth of this child is God's strange, mysterious, wonderful way of saving. And it will take a lifetime and even eternity to unpack it all. Here's the second thing. This, this moment, where God's not, he's, he's not playing by our rules, he's playing by his, is the fulfillment of his word. He may not play by our rules, but he always keeps his word. Matthew writes, this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by his prophet Isaiah. Now, again, many of us are familiar uh, with this passage, but if you go back and actually read Isaiah 7, where this verse is, um, it's a little different than you would expect. This isn't just a prophecy kind of thrown out there. It comes in the context of great political turmoil and anxiety and fear and worry and concern. You have a king of the southern kingdom. His name is Ahaz. And the Assyrian empire is on the march. And everybody is terrified. So there's two kings to the north. And they decide, 
we're going to form a coalition to fight against the Assyrian Empire. And we want Ahaz, the king of the southern kingdom, to join us in this co- coalition. But Ahaz is not having it. So they're like, we're going to come and we're going to crush Ahaz in the southern kingdom. And Ahaz is terrified. And all the people of the southern kingdom are just, they're out of their mind with fear and worry and concern. And God sends his prophet Isaiah to tell Ahaz, listen, this is not going to be successful. And I want you to trust me. Ask me for a sign. Make it as big as you want. And Ahaz is like, oh no, I'm not going to test the Lord. Okay. But Ahaz secretly has decided he's going to make a pact with Assyria against these two northern kings. Now, one person put it like this. This is like a mouse being attacked by two rats appealing to the cat for help. Okay? Uh, This is not going to go well. (laughs) And God says, all right, right, you you, you don't want to trust me? I'm going to give a sign anyways. And that sign first is a sign of judgment that no matter what you do and how you act, I will not abandon my people. And he promises a child born of a young woman or a virgin. Don't get distracted by the translation differences there. And that promise has a first application in the birth of Isaiah's son that becomes a symbol and a sign to God's people, of God's presence, even in the midst of judgment. But as the story unfolds, the significance of this child grows. And you hear words like we read in Isaiah 9, or we've sung each week, that this child is going to be special beyond anybody's imagination. He will be mighty God, be everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor. He's Emmanuel, God with us. And in the birth of Jesus to Mary and Joseph, Matthew is looking back and saying, how good God is to keep His Word in the most extraordinary of ways. You see, God's word is its like this force. It's like this power that's pregnant with life. As Frederick Dale Bruner wrote, it's like a life that bursts into fulfillment in the history of Jesus. Holy Scripture, like the Holy Spirit, is full of Jesus Christ. All Scripture longs to be filled with Christ and to be interpreted in His light. It was made for Him. What a beautiful way to put it. It's like the Old Testament sketches in in pencil, in outline. And then Jesus shows up and fills it in with stunning color and detail. The language that's used here is, this is what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And it comes to fulfillment in Jesus. And Matthew will trip over himself to highlight this again and again and again. He has nearly a dozen fulfillment citations in his gospel. More than any other gospel. And he's saying, do you see... This is what it was all about all along. God coming to save and to be with his people. The entire plan finds its complete fulfillment and deepest expression in this child, Jesus. Apostle Paul, he follows in Matthew's footsteps. In Galatians 3 and 4, he labors to show the unity of God's saving purposes and their fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus. God always keeps his word, even if it means him getting low and him becoming vulnerable. And that's where we're really 
getting to the point of this passage and the significance of the name Emmanuel. Jesus is God with us and God for us forever. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. In the Old Testament, the picture of God was primarily, not exclusively, but the, it was primarily the above us God, his transcendence, his majesty. And he did stoop down to come near his people because he loves them. But the glory of Christmas is putting flesh on the reality of God coming near, that the above us God stoops down and becomes not only with us, but one of us. And it doesn't get any more with us than that. You know, if you think about the religion of Islam, and I put a quote for you in the beginning of your bulletin. In Islam, God is too holy to come down like that. Right? He, anyone who claims that God has a son or that, you know, he became a human being, commits what is called shirk, which is blasphemy in Islam. But the story of Christmas is that actually God is so great that he can come down. And his love is so immense that he wants to. God not only sends prophets and visions and dreams, but he comes. He comes in person of Jesus. Frederick Daryl Bruner writes, Christmas is God's own self-shirking. Taking upon himself the limitations of vulnerability, the eternal experiencing temporality. Right? The powerful coming cloaked in weakness. You know, this, as much as anything, sheds enormous light on who God is. And it would take the church centuries to tease out the implications. But the above us God becomes the with us God, right? And the Trinity is the church's answer to how this can be. He is one God eternally existing as three persons, the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's all there in the beginning, even though it takes a while to develop adequate language to understand it. When you look at Jesus' baptism, you have the Holy Spirit, you have the Father speaking, you have the pronouncement that this is my Son whom I love. When you look at the ministry of Jesus, He forgives sins. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You see him receiving worship. You see his resurrection from the dead. You hear his claim to have all authority in heaven and earth. The virgin birth prepares the way for all of this. This is the one. This is the child. This is the fulfillment of God's promise. And no, it didn't, it didn't go according to our plans. It went according to his. The one who grows inside Mary's womb is none other than the eternal son of God. Now, the question is, why? Why did God do it this way? Well, here's why. In order to save. In the flesh. You know, every week we celebrate the significance of this moment. When we hear, this is my body given for you. This is my blood poured out for you. See, this moment, which the church calls incarnation... Enfleshment, it's the critical ingredient for the establishment of God's new covenant. Without it, nothing else makes sense. Without it, nothing else makes a difference. It's just another story of a revolutionary who died a martyr's death and hopefully can inspire some people but cannot save. But Jesus, God in the flesh, brings forgiveness of sins through his own death 
as the wages of sin. C.S. Lewis calls this the grand miracle on which everything else hangs. And I want you to think about this. This Jesus who experienced all the travails and vulnerabilities of human existence yet without sin suffered a horrifying death on a cross and rose victoriously of the grave. Speaks to his people and he says, I am with you always until the end of the age. He says, never will I leave you nor forsake you. And the way this book, the Bible, ends is behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. This is God's way. This is his plan. These are his purposes. It's according to his word. And he will always make good on his word and keep his promises, even if it means clothing himself in flesh and experiencing the miseries of this life and even death is the wages of sin. Right? What could be better news than that? What, what, what could reframe the way we look at everything that we experience in life better than this can? This is who God is. He's the with us God. He's the one who comes near. He's the one who saves. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we, Lord, we just ask that you would cut through the familiarity and that you would just bring fresh realization of who you are and what you have done for us in the life, death, and resurrection of your son. We want to have our hearts freed to be able to marvel again at this because it really does change the way that we view everything. And Lord, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, uh, you would minister the presence of Jesus in our hearts and in our lives. And not only as individuals, but as a people. A people who gather today to worship and a people who are going to go out today to love and to serve. And we are desperate for you to work your grace into our hearts, that that may be so. So we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.